0: We're in Genesis 44, we have nine sermons left in Genesis, that will bring us to two years of working through the book of Genesis. There's been a huge blessing to be able to faithfully work through this amazing beginning, uh, beginning of the Word of God. We're going to read the whole chapter as we have been doing for some time, and we're going to unpack it after that. So join with me as we read Genesis 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house. Oh, sorry, I'm just going to read verse 34 for context. So 34 out of 43 we see they're having a feast with the brothers and Joseph is preparing the feast and in verse 34 it says, Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs and they drank and were merry with him. Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the, the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he said to Joseph, tell him, and, and he did, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their do- documents. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, ah, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by his hand he practices divination? You have gone, you have done evil in this doing. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, "Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing." Behold, the money that we, found, that we found in our mouth the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest, and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose, whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, You shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our younger brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, one left me, and I said, Surely, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs to, in, hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in, in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the grey hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to, him, to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant to, to my lord, and let the boy go back with his, his brothers." For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Let's pray. Holy Father, your word is so good, so sufficient. Lord, as we have seen so often, Christ is revealed to us on every page of the Old Testament. As we see the gospel foretold and proclaimed through the lives of your servants, through the lives of your people. And Lord, as we come to this passage again, as we continue to follow the brothers of Israel, uh, the, the sons of Israel, the brothers of Joseph, as we look at what it means to be a people for Your glory, that Your purpose all along was to have a people in Your place under Your rule, would we see that every part of our individual sanctification is for the common good of Your body, the, the Church? Would we see that the transformation in Joseph and Judah and Uh, 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 Jacob and every one of the brothers was for the common good of Israel. Lord, as we ponder repentance and transformation, sanctification, would your name be exalted? Would the gospel be proclaimed? And would sinners be humbled? I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. God's concern for his people never wearies or grows tired, nor is it ever dependent upon them. God's concern for his people is always dependent upon himself. And as we have seen, God has prospered one individual at a time in order to establish a nation for his own possession. We start with Abraham. And Abraham becomes prosperous. And then Isaac takes over and he becomes prosperous. And now Jacob becomes prosperous. And from Jacob, 12 sons are born who become 12 tribes of Israel. It's important to remember that God, what God did in an individual was for the common good of His people. What God did for Abraham and Isaac was for the common good of Israel in the future. What He did in Jacob was for Jacob to eventually be changed to Israel his name was changed to Israel the sanctifying work done in Judah was for the good of his brothers that Judah will now stand in the place of punishment for Benjamin and the sanctifying work done in Joseph was so that Joseph would one day be the ruler of Egypt and provide for his brothers creating a space for Israel Israel to flourish I've been compelled the longer I preach, and particularly the longer I preach Genesis, that we must read the Scriptures in the way they were intended, that it's for a people and not just the individual. The individual matters and God cares about us and loves us as a lost sheep, yet He is building a people. He will not just have you and Him in heaven. He will have you and millions, a number number that no one can count, from every tribe, nation, and tongue as Revelation pitches. So as we looked at two weeks ago, we saw that your sanctifying work that is happening in you today is for the common good of the holiness of the church. And when we look not too far along in Israel's history, well, not too far along in the Bible, but 400 or 500 years along in terms of time, the mantra of Israel in Deuteronomy 6.4 says the Lord our God or Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. This will carry on, this statement. Yahweh is one. The Lord is one. Our God is one. He is not divided. And the reason being is these tribes are going to become enormous. And these tribes, each of the brothers could become a nation of their own and have power of their own and have their own God to represent them. But God states, I am one, therefore Israel will always be one. There's something that God cares about. Unity. Unity. God cares about the unity of his people remaining as one because that represents him as the triune God. It bears his image. Psalm 132 is a beautiful three verse psalm that says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard uh, running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron. Running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the Jew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Unity is clearly important to God. Because God himself is one. It is so important to God that when Jesus was in flesh, he played, prayed three times in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17... I pray that they will be perfectly one. I pray that they will be perfectly one. As I and you are one, may they be one. Yet, we must ask the question, is it unity at all cost? Is unity the highest focus of God? Does God want us to forsake all other things in order to remain as one and not divide? I think not. I think the rest of the scripture, as we unpack it, reveals that holiness triumphs over unity. Holiness is what God values. For he himself identifies himself as the holy, holy, holy God. And you know we know that in the Hebrew language, when we repeat a word twice, it is to emphasize it. Holy, holy, holy is the only word ever mentioned three times in a row. God is primarily holy, so he wants a whole, he has a holy love and a holy anger. Of course, he's looking towards a holy unity. Unity that comes through holiness. When one of the people sin in Israel, they'll separate it out. The phrase in Leviticus that is repeated over and over again is purge the evil from among you. Separate out sinners. Those that do not repent are removed. Those who do certain sins were killed. There was capital punishment. Yet Israel lost all sense of the pleasantness of unity that we see in Psalm 132 in the days of Judges when they forgo God's standard of holiness and rise up a standard for themselves. And what does it say? They did all, they did, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So one person's going, I'm doing this, and the other person's going, that's good for you, I'm going to do this. Sounds like our world. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone has a truth, and that truth is okay. But what comes with that is more sorrow, more pain, more corruption, and a spiraling into more vile and evil practices. Just read the last two chapters of Judges and you'll see it. It's not unity at all cost. It's unity under the holiness of God. It's unity pursued through the holiness of God. So what we see through the pursuit of holiness is a reflection of the one triune God who is holy. So as we look at Joseph and his brothers, we see division through sin that separated them out. Joseph has been sold into slavery and is in Egypt Although God has prospered him, the brothers have gone off on their own paths and caused chaos, but they've been brought back through confronting sin and a repentance that is more renowned than their sin. This is what I want to look at, how sin causes division, but how confronting sin and repentance that is more renowned than our sin. Let's unpack this as we work through a few verses at a time. I want to focus in on that verse 34 of chapter 43 just to give us the context of what was happening. We saw the brothers go back to Egypt to bring some food. Of course, the Joseph, who they don't know that's Joseph yet, was told that if you don't come back with Benjamin, you will not see my face. He sees Benjamin. He has compassion and mercy on them. And he throws them this feast, probably the best meal they've had in the years of the famine. And they're sitting there in oldest to youngest And the meals are being served and it says the portions were taken from Joseph's table to their table and Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs and they drank and were merry with him. The evening has gone well. The brothers came with fearfulness yet God had shown them mercy upon mercy. We use the word mercies which was the way of the Hebrews uh, applying excess to God's goodness. And they sat down for a meal and Benjamin is treated with favoritism. He's shown partiality. They, they give, Joseph gives him more. And the question that Joseph is looking to answer is, have these men changed? Are they still puffed up in envy? That if he shows Benjamin favoritism, if he bestows on him more love than what they get, will they turn and surrender him for their own sake? as they did to him. When their father gave him a multicolored coat, they turned and sold him into slavery. Envy got the better of them. Jealousy built up and welled up in them to the point where they were willing to sacrifice their brother for 30 or 20 pieces of silver. Now, he knows that they're not going to do something in front of him, not, he's, they, they were in secret when they sold Joseph into slavery and put him in that well. So he has a bigger plan at play. He's shown Benjamin favoritism, a favoritism that was five times as much as the brothers. But now he's going to come up with a plan. We read it in 1 to 13 that he'll put a silver cup in Benjamin's and, 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 a, and prove that he is guilty so that the brothers can forego him. They can let him go and be like, well, he stole it. I'm going to let him go anyway. We don't care about him. So we see the plan in verses 1 to 5 laid out. Joseph takes the silver cup, his silver cup, puts it, gets his stewards to put it in Benjamin's sack. And of course, the brothers will have the opportunity on the road to get rid of Benjamin if they will. The stewards chase them down and they have the opportunity here to, to be... They're actually surprised by seeing them, surprised at seeing the Egyptians. And it says in verse, verse 6 to 9, "'When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. "'They said to him, "'Why does my Lord speak with such words as these? "'Far be it from your servant to do such a thing. "'Behold, the money that we found in our mouths of our sacks "'we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. "'How could we steal silver and gold from your Lord's house?' Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. In verse 10 it says, And he said, Let it be as you have said. He who is found shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. These Hebrew men, the brothers of Joseph, have integrity. They found silver in their sacks last time and they brought it back. And they used this to show that they are men of integrity. We're not stealing anything. They have so much confidence that they didn't steal that they offer up a huge price. We will all be your servants and the one who has it will die. These brothers are certain that they did not steal this cup. Yet Joseph's steward is also certain that the cup is in Benjamin's sack since he is the one that put it there. But in verse 13, we see a big change in the brothers. In verse 13, after they have handed down their sacks, they willingly show off their sacks and everyone's sack is being inspected from the oldest to the youngest and finally they get to Benjamin and they see Benjamin's sack and there is the silver cup. Of course, their hearts would have been broken. They would have been torn apart. And in verse 13, it says, Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. This is the first evidence of change in the brothers. And the reason being, when Joseph disappeared, when Joseph was left in the world and uh, well and sold into slavery, in verse 37, uh, chapter 37, verse 34, Joseph tore, uh, Jacob tore his clothes. The brothers stood there smugly with the uh, multicolored coat covered in lamb's blood or goat's blood and, and almost said, is this yours? Identify it. When Jacob identifies, he tears his clothes. But now the brothers have a new brotherly affection for one another that wasn't there before. And even though the favoured Benjamin, Benjamin who has had five times bestowed upon him, they could be like, well, send him off to Egypt. He stole it. It's his fault. I'm going to send him back. He's favoured in Egypt anyway. The man will take care of him. But they didn't. They tore their clothes as Jacob tore his And they mourned and grieved and they saddled straight back on the donkeys and they wouldn't leave Benjamin alone, but they went with him. With him back to Egypt. Some might look at this and look at Joseph and think it's unfair. He's dealing with these brothers too harshly. Why would he test them in such a way? But as we said at the start, it's not unity at all costs. Joseph is not wanting unity with those he doesn't have a common value with. The common value of holiness. You see, Joseph, since being sold into slavery, since dwelling in that well, and all the way to the, the journey that he went on to Egypt, the time at Potiphar's house, the time when he dwelt in prison, for 13 plus years he has been tested. And now, as he rules over a pagan nation, he is still being tested. Will he go after the Egyptian gods? Or will he remain faithful to Yahweh as he is the only one in the city that worships him? Joseph knows what it means to be tested by God. And he has found that he alone is prosperous because God is with him. And he wants to know, is God with these brothers of mine? It's not unity at all costs. It's unity with those who seek the same holiness as me, who have the same values as me. And Joseph tests them. And we see this also in the New Testament. We see Saul, who becomes Paul, he's a persecutor of the church, he's going on the road to Damascus, he gets saved in a miraculous way as the resurrected Jesus, the ascended Jesus, stands before him. And he he is saved, and he goes into Damascus, he's blind, he recovers his sight, and he goes off preaching in the synagogues immediately. But when he comes to Jerusalem, he comes to Jerusalem and the apostles are sceptical. Fair enough, right? This guy just was killing people. He was approving of Stephen's death. He was taking people and arresting them. And he sought, they sought reference. They examined his life and they, they sought a, a referee, so to speak, from Barnabas. Tested. Is this man on the same path as us? Does this man value Jesus the same way we value Jesus? Is he willing to actually die for the faith? And as he is tested, of course, they find that he is a brother and they actually protect his life and and send him away from Jerusalem as people tried to kill him. Or maybe we can look in 1 Timothy 3.10, which uses this word deacon. Deacon's uh, 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 translation is servant. And it says each servant should be tested, or every person that wants to be a deacon should be tested, a tested person. Humility in the believer is a person who is willing to go under a test for the sake of finding true unity and for the sake of upholding the holiness of God. A believer is a humble servant. We've we've defined that before. What is a Christian in two words? A humble servant. And if they are a humble servant and they come into a new fellowship of faith and the fellowship of faith is like, look, we just want to call some of your old churches. We want to know a bit about your character. We want to know, do you value the holiness of God and uphold the holiness of Christ like we do? And if we test and find that they are lacking there is no unity there. 1 Corinthians 5 reveals this. A man stuck in sexual immorality and Paul says to them, why are you still eating with such a man? He doesn't uphold the holiness that we uphold. He's profaning Christ. So we see so clearly that it's not unity at all costs, but unity found with the common ground of holiness and upholding the perfect image of God. And that is why Joseph tests his brother, brothers. We go on to verse uh, 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that I am a man, uh, that that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or, who can we clear, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose, whose hand the cup has been found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace." To your father. Joseph charges them. Charges them with the charge of stealing. And he says, how can you do such a thing? Shouldn't you fear me? I have power and authority over you. And who is it that speaks? Really important to notice who it is that speaks. Judah. Not the oldest. Judah speaks. The fourth in line. He is the spokesperson here. Judah's response is, He gives glory to God alone, the one who reveals secrets, the secret sins of our hearts. And it is God's grace that he would draw out our secrets and bring them into the light. And he says this amazing statement, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, he could be referring about Benjamin stealing the cup, but I think the brothers are pretty aware that they are innocent and they believe one another. And most common commentators believe that what he's confessing guilt of is not the stealing of the cup, but God has revealed the guilt of foregoing their other brother, Joseph. In Genesis 42: 21- 22, we see the brothers all agree that Jesus is at uh, Jesus. Joseph is being harsh with them because of what they did. Remember, they don't know it's Joseph. He looks like an Egyptian. But he, they believe that Joseph is being harsh with them originally because of what they did, because of their secret sin. Because this sin of selling their brother into slavery has never come out into the open. It's never been, been brought up. It's never been discussed. Probably among the brothers who did it, they don't even talk about it because they don't want Jacob hearing about it. So when Judah declares, God has found out the guilt of your servants, he's not talking about the petty cup. He's revealing... Finally, God is going to bring some judgment upon us. Right now before us, we have an opportunity to forego our other brother, the brother of Joseph, and to give him over to the Egyptian to the Egyptians, because he is clearly stuck in a situation of false guilt here, or tried falsely. And Joseph gives them every opportunity to in verse 17. Joseph is really sort of almost egging them on. Do this. You've done it before, try it again. Far be it from me that I should do such a thing. We're not going to take you all as servants. We're only going to take the one man, the one man in who the cup was found. And Joseph is, is, is testing and giving them every opportunity to give over Benjamin and free themselves. They would be free to go. But Judah, Judah is a changed man. He's a man who realized that God is going to bring out every guilt Back in Genesis 38, of course, his secret sin of sleeping with his daughter-in-law, dressed as a cult prostitute, was revealed. He couldn't keep it a secret anymore. And he knows that God will draw out every secret sin in him for his good. So Judah continues in 18:23 and reasons with Joseph, Joseph by the testimony of their honesty. You asked whether we had a father. You asked whether we had another brother. And we were honest with you. We were honest men. And then when we came, we brought him back to you. He reasons from a point of honesty. And then from 24, he reasons from a point of sympathy for his father. He says, when, you went, uh, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother goes with us, then we will go down. So we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. 29, if you think, if you take this one also from me, and harm happens to me, you will bring down my grey hairs in evil to Sheol. So he he reasons from the perspective of honesty. We are men of integrity, but we're also men who care deeply for our father. He reasons from a point of view of of, of confronting his father's favoritism, his father's sin. And what we actually see Joseph doing is, uh, sorry, Judah doing. He's he's actually come to a place where he can confront the sin of not only himself but the f- sin of his father, favoritism. Remember, this is a man who sinned against jo- uh, Joseph, sold him into slavery, and then ran off and dressed himself as a Canaanite and acted like a Canaanite, acted like a pagan. He has now returned, he has been convicted, sin has been drawn out of him, and he is confronting sins in not only his own life, but sins in his, his family's life that have affected him. And in the confronting of sin, he has found unity and connection to them, a deeper connection than what they once had. He confronts the, fi- the sin of his father and he sympathizes with his father. He realizes his father had this wife whom he loved and she died young and he, she had a son when she was dying and he's close to that child. He clings to that child as if it's clinging to his wife. It says his life is bound up in that boy. So Judah has matured so much in his faith that he can confront the sins of his father and actually sympathize with him, forgive him and understand where the sin has been coming from. We see so clearly that Judah's reality has changed. He's a man that's not afraid to confront sin because he knows that when he confronts sin, grace is abounding to him. In fact, it's a New Testament scripture that says that God will imply the law upon us so that sins may abound, Romans 5.20. Now, the law came, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abound all the more. The law came not until Moses had delivered Israel, so Israel grew, grew into millions of people, and that's when the law came. And when the law came, it revealed more of the sinfulness of people. And God says where, the law, where sin increased, grace will abound all the more. So confronting sin brings grace upon grace, and grace brings change. In order to have unity for Judah and Joseph, sin of the past had to be confronted. The sin of selling their brother had to be confronted and put to death and never brought up again. This is a hard challenge. To confront sin that has affected us, sin in ourselves, sin in our brothers and sisters, deal with it by applying grace upon grace to one another, receiving repentance... And then to never bring it up again. Which actually happens. They bring it up again. Jacob dies at the end of Genesis. And the brothers are fearful that Joseph will now kill them or put them in slavery. And he confronts him. He remembers that they've dealt with it. And he says, no, no, brothers, God did this for our good so that we would be provided for, so that I could provide for you. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The sin of the past has been dealt with. Only grace abounds towards you now. We're going to live in Egypt or just outside of Egypt and we are going to prosper because God has been gracious in the midst of our ever-increasing sin. In the church today, sin, in some churches today, but we see that sin has become taboo. A word that you shouldn't mention. We water it down to use things like, oh, you made mistakes. You carry burdens. No, you sinned. Or some sins have become taboo. It is not unity if we ignore the problem. It is like a cancer that eats away from the inside and the church will slowly, or an individual local body, will slowly be killed. Holiness is what Christ claimed for us. Holiness is what we should aim for. Holiness comes through confronting sin, which follows... Holiness comes through confronting sin, which what follows that is the death of sin. The death of sin. When we confront sin, it is dead. And what should stand out above the sin is a renowned repentance a famous repentance let's finish in 30 to 34 looking at what it means to have a renowned repentance now therefore as soon as i come to your servant my as soon as i came to come to your servant my father and the boy is not with us Then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with me, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For our servant became a pledge of safety for the boy, sorry, for your servant has become a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. If we would ask Judah to share his testimony in the way we would share our testimony today, it would probably be told with a lot of great detail of sin with a small detail that Jesus died on the cross for those sins. And Judah was a great sinner, but he had a greater saviour. And the testimony that he tells doesn't deal in detail with the sin, but with the change and renowned repentance that God has brought in him. His testimony exalts not his sin, but his saviour. His repentance here demonstrated through action, not word, but through action saying, I will step into the position of suffering and death for my brother. I will come, I'll become a slave for the rest of my life so that my brother can go free. And he doesn't exalt his sin, but he exalts his repentance. I'm a changed man. My life has been turned upside down. I was wayward, I was shameful, I was full of guilt, but I've been humbled and I will step into that place. A people devoted to holiness will have a renowned repentance. That their repentance may be so real that people can't even remember the details of their sin. They not even remember that Judas slept with his daughter-in-law. Because it doesn't matter anymore. Because Christ has redeemed it, and those two sons that came from that will go on to become the uh, descendants that will bring forth the Saviour Jesus. So here, the beauty of Judah's story. He was a man who sold his brother into slavery, which caused him to run from God and from his family into all kinds of evil. Till one day, God, through his grace, stopped him and humbled him through the words of a prostitute. And his life changed dramatically. That the years that would later follow would exalt a changed man. Would exalt repentance, because repentance means to do a U-turn and turn towards God, not away from him. And as he demonstrates this changed life, he foreshadows his older brother, Jesus. Our older brother. Jesus, the one who had nothing to repent of, but because he had, but became sin and willingly put his life in the hands of his own people to save them from death. Judas steps up and with his action says, I am the chief of sinners. And the crowd today would say, well, what have you done? And he would respond, everything. I've broken the whole law. The testimony of each and every one of us is not details of intimate, gory sin. But I'm the chief of sinners. You are the chief of sinners. What have you done? You've broken all of it. Every single one of the laws of God you have failed at. But I'm a repentant man. And Judah says, I am a repentant man. I will step into position of my brother. And Christ says, no, I'll step in the position for you, Judah, and I'll die. And in my death, sin will not be exalted, but the repentant man and the changed man will be exalted. Christ will be exalted. A righteousness that doesn't come from the law, but comes through faith in Jesus alone. Let me paint a black picture for you. You were the greatest sinner you know. Therefore, you are the chief of sinners and have broken the whole law of God. The details don't matter because God's grace abounds to the chief of sinners. Unity is found in the church when we all can say, I am the chief of sinners. I've confronted the sin in my life. I'm still confronting the sin in the life, but oh, so wonderfully free is the abounding grace that increases to me with every other sin that I confess. With every other sin that I confess. You know, it's, it's, it's incredible to think about this story that Joseph probably never knows about Judah's life. Doesn't know what he did after he sold him. Doesn't know about the details of the sin. But what Joseph sees here is a man who says, I will die for Benjamin. What Joseph sees here is the gospel. Jesus says, I will die for you. As we think about our own sin, as we think about unity in the church, would we look to be people who say, I'm the worst sinner I know. And if everyone in this room is saying that, We can apply grace upon grace through the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood poured out, through his body broken for us all the days of our life. And we can be those who, like God himself, says your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. And we can do that for one another. As we see Joseph will do for Judah and his brothers. And more importantly, as Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Merciful God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And have mercy on my brothers and sisters who are sinners. May your grace abound. May we remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we uphold holiness. The holiness which cost the Son of God, Jesus, his life. Lord, may we stand in the resurrection, justified, applying grace upon grace all the days of our life, not only to ourselves, Lord, but to one another. and Lord I thank you for communion a way to respond weekly to you being invited to your table a table that is exclusive a table that is set apart for those who will eat of the the feast in, in the new heavens and the new earth a table that reminds us of the blood poured out for our salvation and the body broken our Lord Jesus our older brother who gives us all his worth and status. We are adopted children. We have your spirit as a guarantee and we await. We await, Lord, with great anticipation to receive our inheritance in full and to gaze upon your beautiful face. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.